Good morning. How's everybody? Good? Okay, so if you start falling asleep, remember, you can stand in the back. There's no um, shame in getting up. You know, basically, when you stand up and you go to the back, what you're telling everybody is, like, I care about the word entering into my heart, and I long for the Lord. And, you know, I used to fall asleep all the time listening to preaching, and so it's okay. Just no shame getting up. I'm actually encouraged when people get up. Uh, Let's look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Title, we face to face, we're forgiven to love. Face to face, we're forgiven to love. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And, And it's a very loaded question. Just, you know, somebody, and and he feels like, oh, as many as seven times, and so he blew this number up, only requirement is three, and so he's saying seven. Like, do I have to go overboard in forgiveness? And he thought, man, I'm pushing the limits of trying to forgive someone who's a horrible person. And in verse 22, Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. That's crushing. If you've ever been hurt by anyone... Forgiving them once is tough, let alone seven and even more, 77 times. It might as well be eternity. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's about 12 million or a billion. It doesn't really matter. Just an amount that you cannot pay back. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, not only him, but his wife and children and everything that they had so that payment could be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. That's the response I want you to remember. In verse 27, and out of pity, out of mercy for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the entire debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's like a hundred days work for a day, maybe 5,000, maybe less. And seizing him, he began to choke him and saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell face down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Not in totality, but as much as I can. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt, which he never will. So also my heavenly father will do to every single one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, 
This is one of the things that you command of us that is the most difficult. And this journey of delving deeper and deeper into the forgiveness you grant to us to transform our hearts to be ones who carry reconciliation and forgiveness. Lord God, would you allow that to happen in your mercy and grace? Would we be agents of those who carry the joy of forgiveness you have granted to us to all that we meet and encounter? Would you be present with us to deeply change those that are in this room. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that uh, Pastor D.L. reminded me of is that I didn't get to emphasize yesterday is that at the end of that story, God reminded Elijah that he doesn't have to be the only prophet to carry the burden for revival. He did. For all that long time, he always felt like, man, I got to do this. No one else is doing it. But God reminded him at the end when he healed that heart, like, man, revival didn't happen, and he was heartbroken over it. And he basically said, you're not alone. He sends him back to the exact same situation, exact same broken people. And then he says to him, there's a guy named Jehu, Hazel, and Elisha. They're your brothers, and they fight for me and my kingdom. Go back and call them into the ministry and tell them, that they are to stand alongside of you. And then if that is not enough, he reminds them, not only are those three going to come alongside of you, but there are 7,000 that I personally have kept from bowing to foreign idols. Isn't it encouraging to you and me that God sustains us not only in the fact that he creates a revival in our own hearts, but he's doing that to so many people around us. And to be encouraged that you're never going to be alone as you grow in his love, as he exposes your idols and makes you repent deeply, and to remind you that you're never alone. So today, because these relationships are so important, the thing that I'm going to address to you, one of the things that you will come face to face with in relationships is that there will always be broken relationships. That the best of us who have tasted the love of God, that those of us who have been transformed forever, that even those people, our family members and those who have promised us that they would never hurt us or abandon us, they will hurt us and they will break our hearts. And so one of the most important things that we need to come to grips with is that people who say they love the Lord, people who say that they love you will break your heart. And it is at this point that reconciliation and forgiveness and the call to those things become vitally important to our souls. But this is one of the most extremely hard things for people because we have a tendency, and this scripture tells us our tendency. Our natural tendency is that we expect forgiveness and grace. So we want other people to just forgive us, right? We're like, man, I jacked it up. But come on, aren't you a Christian? Let it go. Let it go, let it go, right? Just let it go, come on, man. But when somebody hurts us, we're a different creature. We're like, no, I remember you took my fries. I'm gonna hate you forever. 
And I'd venture to suggest that it is probably no different inside the church than outside the church. Though already included in the spirit of the Lord's prayer, right? Who here can say the Lord's prayer from memory? Our Father in heaven. All right, stars for everybody, right? You all memorized it. There's so many elements to that. God's will being done, all forgiveness, keep us from temptation, all of it. But did you, what verses come after the Lord's Prayer? Did you know? Nobody memorized those verses. Do you know there are verses that come after that? There must, right? You know what verses come after that in Matthew 6, 14? If it wasn't enough that every single Lord's Prayer includes forgiving other people, in verse 14, he re-emphasizes and he says this, if, you didn't get it, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. It's another emphasis of the exact same thing that happened. So important that God repeats it and lets you know it's that important. And then if you didn't get it enough, in verse 15, he says, but if you do not forgive other people their trespasses, neither will the Father forgive your trespasses. He was saying, now attaching it to your salvation and saying, you know what? If you don't forgive, then how can we say that we are truly believers when you have received such forgiveness that if there is malice and a willingness and, and, a, uh, and a desire and a hate and unresponsive heart of forgiveness, then how can we say that we are children of God? It is strong, it is unapologetic, and it's such a jarring statement. And it's repetition that forgiveness is on the heart of God. Reconciliation, that what he did by sending his son to reconcile you to him, that that needs to happen from your heart to everyone that you encounter, everyone who hurts you, every wounded soul that encounters should taste the fact that you have tasted that forgiveness from God. That is your calling, and that will never change. Did you know that left to ourselves, the way we naturally, instinctively respond to somebody wounding us, and I've seen it, and the places that I've seen it inside the church, is people will hold over them a debt. If somebody wounds you and someone hurts you, then you hold it against them and you make them hold a debt to you and you demand that they pay you back and you will make them pay you back a dollar at a time. For a lifetime, as long as you need to, you will make sure that they suffer. You know how creative and brilliant people are at making other people pay for the sins that they did? I see it in churches all the time. People roll inside the church and all of a sudden they see somebody that they don't like and then immediately they like open their phones, right? Because you don't want to make eye contact. You're like, and you walk away and you go all the way around. Even though you want coffee, the person standing next to the coffee. So you go all the way around and you wait for them to leave so you can get coffee. I've seen it. It's almost to say, I'm going to ignore you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to come near you. That if they're sitting on one side of the church, they will sit on the other side so that they don't run into them. 
We do everything we can to make sure that they know that we've been hurt by them and we want nothing to do with them. Our answers are short. Our answers are angry. Even though you say words like, ha ha, nice to see ya. And you walk away. Let's admit it. Deeply, we want people to suffer if they caused us suffering. We are vengeful to the core, left alone to ourselves. Because we felt the weight of rejection, we felt the weight that we, we were vulnerable. We reached out to them. We had a relationship. We loved them, and they crushed us, whether it's a past boyfriend or girlfriend or someone we cared about or parents whom we've loved, and they have taken our love and vulnerability and destroyed it. We want them to pay for it. We want them to be hurt. So we'll gather a group of our friends and be like, hey, you know what this person did? This jacked up, and you will get a bunch of people who agree with you, and you will talk about them until these people People who were neutral to that person all of a sudden is like, yeah, that's jacked up. Let's hate them together. Yeah. And you gather together and you're like a club of haters, right? And you look at them and it's like, oh, and you disdain them together. You're like the mean girls of your church and you're just like, oh, hate them. Not left to ourselves, this is our natural tendency. And so God emphasizes again and again and again, forgive, forgive, forgive. How can you say that you're mine if you don't do the basic thing that has set you free? When I read this story, it seemed almost comical. The person who was forgiven $15 million in debt Do you know what happens if you owe somebody $15 million? That means every day for the rest of your life, you can give every penny of your paycheck and you will never pay them back. You will be in debt forever and have nothing to your name and yet you won't get out of that debt. It's crushing. Imagine being forgiven of that. And then going out and grabbing somebody who owes you 10 bucks, 15 bucks, and just choking them. Just like, oh, no, no. give me my $15. But the thing that I found powerful was his response. The one who was just forgiven $15 million, and, and he comes and he begs and he pleads the Lord and he says, would you forgive me my $15 million? Would you have mercy upon me? And then the phrase that comes right after, he says, will you have mercy and I will pay you back everything? I feel like he's somebody who doesn't understand the debt that he owed. You cannot utter the words... Give me enough time and I will pay you back everything. You know, a lot of my childhood was spent answering creditors who constantly called my parents. And you know what's funny? My parents couldn't speak English that well, so they would be like, you know, my dad would be like, Pabia, you know? He's like, call and tell them that you're me. And I was like, I'm like 11, 12, you know? So my voice is still like, hi. Right? So you want me to call them and pretend I'm like 45 and tell them that we need more time to pay the debt? It's like, hello, my name is Daysaksa. We need more time. You know, I sounded like Mickey Mouse. And the guy's like, uh, 
is your father there? I am the father, you know, like, you know, and you're like calling and you're telling them and you're doing all of this. And I couldn't imagine, like in my head and heart, as young as I was, all I was thinking about was, man, I got to pay that back. I, my parents just got to get out of this debt. And they were working 16 hours a day making sushi. My mom was working as a waitress. We were living in a one bedroom apartment. Do you know when my friends came over and they would be like, yo, let me get that bowl so I can eat some cereal. I was like, oh, I got to wash the bowl. And my friends would be like, why you got to wash the bowl? And I was like, well, because let me show you. And I would open the cupboard and the cockroaches would start running all over the place. And my friends were like, oh yeah, wash that. (laughs) Wash that. Right, And so I grew up just always constantly washing bowls, washing spoons, even though we put it through the dishwasher. I was eating in my heart and head. There was never a time when we had enough. My parents weren't lazy. They worked their butt off. And yet I was always under the notion knowing that we didn't have enough. Do you know that my junior year, when everyone else was attending Hagwon, you know, and parents were paying like thousands of dollars, they've been going since eighth grade and all of that, I kept fearing for the SATs, and I was like, oh, I got to take it because I got to go to college, but I can't ask them for the class. So you know what I did? It took me forever. A week before I took the SATs, I was like, um, uh, I need $40 so I can buy an SAT book. And it was heartbreaking to see my mom go, okay, let me see. And she opened her purse and the hard everyday work of dollar at a time, people tipping and putting together the wrinkled bills. And she put together like $40, $45 and put it in my hand and said, well, you need it. And I remember taking that money and buying that at Princeton Review. I still remember, bought it. It had a CD in the back. I was like, yeah. And I remember I, like, I had to teach myself the SATs. I was like, what is this? And, you know, and I, I studied it and things like that, and I took the SATs because in my heart, asking for the $40 was crushing to my soul because I knew what my parents went through. I was the kid that my dad would be like, we would walk by a trash can, and my dad would be like, oh, do you see that table? Bobby, go in the trash can, you know? And I was like, dumpster dive, and I would grab the, you know, the table, and my dad would be like, we just paint it brand new. So a lot of our furniture was from the dumpster and people dumping it on the side and things like that. So in my mind, money was always something that we never had. It was crushing our debt. We owed so many people so much money. It was so bad that I had to get rides from everybody. Everybody at school, I always got rides from them, always felt bad asking, like, can I get a ride? My freshman summer, my friend was like, hey, man, you want to be a project manager for my paint company? And I was like, yeah. To make money, I'd do it. I pick up horse poop, I paint houses, I do whatever you need. And then he was like, okay, my project manager, I need you to get up at five, I need you to deliver the paint, I need you to train my painters, and I need you to go and power wash houses. And then I would end the day like middle of the night. And my friend would be like, I'll give you $5,000 at the end of the summer. You know, so I didn't get paid all summer. I woke up every day, painted houses, you know, car wash, train, on and on and on. And by the end of the summer, I was worn out. I was like pitch black really good at painting, super tired and fit. And I was like, yo, give me my money. 
And then my friend was like, I can only give you 3,000. And I was like, come on, man. And so he only gave me 3,000, but for me, 3,000 is still lots of money, right? 3,000 is huge. And so I was like, what am I going to do with the 3,000? And immediately I was like, buy a car. I bought a 1987 Honda Civic, four doors, right? The muffler had so many holes in it from the rust that I would be like smoking like, I don't need drugs. Like, I was high all the time. I mean, the fumes, the carbon monoxide would come through the bottom of the door. I was like, oh, dang, this is nice, you know? And I would just drive that car. And then one day, my uncle was like, hey, you know, you could die. Let me fix it. So he paid to get my muffler fixed. I went down to UVA, and I remember I was driving everybody around in my Honda Civic. I was proud and just... I loved it. I worked for it. I knew the value of money. And so as I was driving the kids around, it was so powerful for me. One day, my friend, uh, Tim Liu, he wanted to meet up for some accountability and sharing time. I, I had to go to the bank to get some money. And I remember I went and got some cash from the bank. And I was about to pull out onto the street. And I grabbed my seatbelt. And I was about to pull it across of my nice new Civic 87. And then when I pulled it across, I was like, man, it's only like two minutes away. So I went, Shoop. I let go of my seatbelt. I was making a left turn all of a sudden. A girl started speeding to beat the yellow light, and I was already in the turn, and she full blast hit into my car. No seatbelt. I remember, I remember the lights, and I remember the boom! And then I remember sitting on the other side of the seat, and there was a hole in the front mirror. Basically, I flew hit the back steering wheel, went through the windshield, and came back and sat on the passenger's seat. And I was like, oh, no, accident. No, my Civic. You know, and I was sitting there. And then all of a sudden, I felt this warm liquid, like, start coming down my face. And I was like, what the? Because it was raining, but it wasn't rain. I mean, it was thick and goopy. And I was like, oh. And then by the time I got to my eyes to figure out where the blood was coming from, there was a hole in my eye, and there was like flesh just hanging. And so I was like, uh-oh. And I was covering my face. <laughs> Paramedics show up. He opens the door. Now, <laughs> paramedics are trained to keep you calm, right? So I was, like, I was like this. Imagine on the driver's side. Paramedic opens the door and goes, sir, I need to see your face so we can evaluate what's going on and we'll, you know, get you healed up. And I was like, drop your hand. So I dropped my hand and he goes, oh, no. <laughs> okay, okay. No, you're not supposed to say, oh, no. And I was like, oh, man, come on. Don't say stuff like that. Blood was like covered. I mean, I had a hole in my eye. I went to the hospital. Now, I'm not supposed to be thinking about anything else other than healing and things like that. I get there. This intern is there, and barely, probably still in med school, and she's like nervous. She's like, oh, sir, there's glass everywhere. So glass was all embedded in my face, and she was like, oh, oh, and she grabbed a towel and started scrubbing my face, and like the glass like ripped open my face. There's more blood, and then blood started spilling over the bed, and it was hitting the floor, and they're like, oh, we're going to have to give you an IV. They kept pumping me full of IV. 
And look, I was pre-med, but I knew this. If someone's bleeding, you don't squirt saline in their eyes and wounds because it doesn't let it coagulate, right? Stop the bleeding. So blood was just gushing, and she just started putting stitches all over the place. Then the head of the ER comes, and she looks at what the intern, you know, or resident, whatever she's done, and she's like, sir, hold on. She gets on the phone, and she calls down the plastic surgeon. Plastic surgeon shows up, and he goes, sir, I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to start all over. And he starts taking out one stitch at a time, all the stitches that the intern put in. And they said, we can't knock you out because... You have head trauma. We don't know if you're going to pass out, so we have to keep you awake. I have to talk to you. And so for eight hours straight, he stitched up my face. He got to the side of my face and was like, that looks like ground beef. I can't do anything about it. And I was like, intern! Scraping the glass. During the whole time, you would think that I would be thinking about my car. I was. It's wrecked, destroyed. But more than anything else, when the plastic surgeon was there, you know what I was thinking about? We don't have insurance. How am I going to pay for the other person's car, bills? How am I going to pay this medical bill? Because the weight of debt was crushing my soul. And as a student, buying each book mattered. Like doing, like it was always on my mind because of my childhood. After eight hours, stitched, went home. The whole time I was just so nervous. Then I got the bill from UVA Med. And I was like, oh, my God. Someone was like, man, that could be like $100,000 because of the plastic surgeon. And I was like, $100,000? And so I grabbed my envelope. I opened the envelope, and I pulled out the bill. And the first thing that I saw was ambulance. And I was like, dang it. Second thing was like, you know, paramedics and all of that. And then the intern. The intern charged me money for stitching my face wrong. And I was like, oh. And then I looked through, couldn't find the plastic surgeon. The bill came out to like 600 some odd dollars. That was it. And my dad calls and he goes, you know what? The day that you got into accident was a few days before the insurance got canceled and we couldn't pay anymore. And so they're going to pay $1,000 worth of all your medical stuff. So all $700 was covered. And I remember sitting there just praising God and being so relieved. The crushing debt of like hundreds of thousands of dollars just lifted off my heart and shoulders. And I remember just being like, praise God. My face was a wreck, but praise God. How can anyone who knows the crushing debt and weight of sin and pain, who has it relieved, not forgive others? Who hasn't wronged you as much, not even close to that? 
just a few bad phrases, maybe a few bad looks here and there, but we have perpetrated sin deeply against God and we've been forgiven it. This text is saying someone who knows and has found relief from such crushing debt, there is no way in that joy that you cannot forgive a brother or sister who has sinned against you. There is no way that someone who has gone through that can come out the other end and be one who wants to punish other people for their trespasses. It grants you the empathy to know that the crushing weight of debt, if you can relieve it, to grant them that joy, to grant them and point them to the one who can also take away that crushing debt That is what a Christian is, that you who have tasted of that, that joy of having that relief, you can't do anything but tell other people, hey, let me tell you about the one who relieved all my debt, who took away all my pain. Let me take you to that person and let them take away that pain. And you know the thing that you said about me, the thing that you did, let me just tell you, we're okay. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 14 says this, for the love of Christ controls, it compels, it moves, it, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for who their sake was dead and raised. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There is no other way to see what the Bible commands. We are called to reconcile and forgive because we are compelled by the forgiveness and the love that the Father has granted to us. Dr. Keller, as you can tell, I quote him a lot, says this. In short, if any relationship has cooled off or has weakened in any way, it is always your move. It doesn't matter who started it. God always holds you responsible to reach out to repair the broken relationship. A Christian is responsible to begin the process of reconciliation regardless of how the distance or the alienation began. I'll conclude with the story of the one person in my life that I couldn't forgive. For me, always it was my father. It will always be my father. My father will always rub me the wrong way. You know, my father was the type of person who was unpredictable. He would be like happy one day, take us out to eat, and then another day he would be angry and like just throwing things. And the mood, I don't know if you've ever had someone like this, but they come into the room and the atmosphere of the actual room changes. 
Like, I remember I was sitting in the house, and you know, when my dad's not there, we're like chilling, watching Korean drama, and just like laughing and things like that. But my dad will come home, and as soon as he gets home, I'm like, oh, I get nervous, turn off the Korean drama, run upstairs to my room, open my homework, and I sit in my chair, and I'm like, <laughs> studying. Like, I sweat, beads of sweat coming down my face. And the first thing he does when he comes home, he's like, Bobby! He's like, oh. He's like, boy, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm studying, right? I, I can't tell him I'm watching Korean drama. I don't know what could happen, right? So I was like, I'm studying, and he was like, 그래. And then the first thing he always asks, did you eat? 밥 먹었어? I'm always like, yes. And then he goes, okay, mow the lawn tomorrow. I'm like, okay. And then he goes to his room. Again and again and again, I witnessed his explosions. I remember when we were growing up, my brother and I, he gave us so much milk. We would drink like gallons of milk every day. And he'd be like, that's how you're going to grow, drink. And so we would always drink milk. And we got tired of drinking milk. They wouldn't give us soda. All we drank was milk and poricha. And he was like, drink the milk. So we were drinking milk. My brother was like, oh, I have to go to the bathroom in front of my dad. And I remember this clearly. My brother goes upstairs to the upstairs bathroom, and he comes back down, and he tells my dad, I drank the milk. Now, I'm not a smart man, but my dad starts going upstairs. He goes to the bathroom, and in the sink, my brother poured out the milk, but he didn't wash it down. There was milk all over the sink. My dad starts screaming, get up here! And then I was like, you're dead. (laughs) And then he was like, Bobby! And I was like, what? I didn't spill the milk! And then we were both brought up to the room, and I remember we're sitting in that room, both of us on our knees, and he started grabbing things, and he started yelling, what did I tell you about lying? And he just... It seemed like he, we couldn't stop him. His eyes were, he was just beating us, beating us. Sticks were breaking. And then everything was broken. So he reached into the closet and started grabbing, like, you know, the uh, Christmas wrappers. He started grabbing the Christmas wrapper and he started hitting my brother again and again. And it started ripping and it was like confetti in the air. And it was like just... And I was sitting there like crying. I was like, is he going to hit me too? And then just watching my brother get beat over and over and just things broken all over the place. And I was like, who is this man? Why is he so angry? My younger brother drew with crayons on his room wall. And I remember when he came in the room, I was like, oh my God, what is he going to do? He's just a baby. He grabbed the TV and threw it across the room. The VCR broke. And we sat there just scrubbing the crayon off because he was so angry. He changes the atmosphere of the room. I lived in fear and I felt always unsafe with him. The good days were good, but the bad days were horrible. And later my mom would start telling me as she cried about how many times she would say like, we have to go to church and every Sunday would be a nightmare. I mean, he would make our lives horrible just trying to get us to church. We would church, miss church so many times because he's out like watering the grass, doing crazy things. And I just was like, can we just have one Sunday where we're not fighting? And my mom would tell me, 
that she often at one in the morning, two in the morning, would go in the backyard and just weep. Because there was a man that she married who was kind, who pursued her, and yet with all this finances and work, and he just angry all the time and she cried and cried and cried and I would sit with her for hours just listening to her tell me these things and when I met my father in heaven when I met my youth pastor it gave me a reason to be like I'm done with that guy my father in heaven is good my father on earth is unsafe I can't wait to get out of here and go to college. So when I went to college, I lived it up. No longer tied to that man. He didn't pay for college. I was on scholarships and loans. I was going to pay all that back later. So I just lived. I lived. I enjoyed. I was in a Christian fellowship. I had older brothers who seemed like they loved Jesus and just was kind. And I was thriving. And I wanted to grow so much to start teaching Bible study. And I remember we went to this college retreat. And I was like praying. And I was telling God how much I loved him. I was like, God, you are a great father. Good, good father. They didn't have that song back then, so I was just telling him, right? And so I was like, this is who I am. I'm loved by you, right? I should have wrote that song. And as I was telling him about how great he is and how much I love him and how I adore him and how I would do anything for him, I would do whatever he asked me to do. And then all of a sudden, a Bible verse, like, started ringing in my heart. This was crazy. He was like... If you come to the altar and if you have anything against the brother, then lay it down and go make amends and then return and make offering. Nobody had to tell me who that was because there was one person I hated more than anyone else who was most unsafe. And I was like, oh, no. This this can't, no. Devil? Over and over, Bible verse, just love your father, love your father. I couldn't shake it. I couldn't shake it. It it traumatized me every day, just over and over and over. And so you know what I did? I was like, fine, God, you want me to do this? I went to the UVA bookstore. I bought a postcard. I sat down at the postcard, and I started writing in my broken Korean, Abaji, Father, Thank you for providing for us. You know, like I couldn't tell him I love. So I was like, I was like, thank you, mom. Thank you, this and all of that. Can't wait to see you work hard at the restaurant. And then you know, I would use like the Korean, like manzu mugang haseyo, you know, and things like that. And I just sent it off. After the break, when I got home, I was like, God, I did my duty. Walked into the house, and on our house refrigerator was the postcard, magnetized up. And I was like, oh, it must have been my mom. And I just let it go. Went back to school, lived my life. I was like, God, thank you for loving me. I even wrote a postcard to that horrible man. Praise God. And then God in my heart, as I was working through 
just growing in Christ. I remember we were about to go down to one of the dining halls because every Saturday we would go witnessing to the basketball players and everybody who came to that place. So my friend was coming to my room, and I remember this was after the accident, so my face was all tore up, and I was sitting there, and I was singing this song in my guitar. Like, I woke up early in the morning, and it was basically what the devil meant for evil, you meant for good. And so my face was, like, all broken. I was like, my face, you know, and I was crying, and I was like, what the devil meant to hurt me like now I rejoice and I was playing the guitar and I was weeping and singing and then all you know as I was weeping and crying God was like call your father right now and I was like no call your father and tell him you love me and just over and over in my heart and I was like no this time is for you and me I'm worshiping leave me alone God you are good I love you and weeping and crying he was like good pick up the phone, call your father, and tell him you love him. I was like, uh-uh. And I was just worshiping. and wor- It got so bad that I was like, fine. Picked up the phone, called my mom, and I was like, this is so early. They wake up at 10. It was like around 7. Picked up, and my mom was like, yeah, but, yeah, but you know, and I was like, Amma, I need to talk to Appa, right? I, I need to talk to Dad. And then she was like, oh, kure. you know, and then so gave phone to my dad and it was so hard i needed every ounce of the holy spirit to make me do this and he picked up the phone and he was like oh you know and i was like appa big pause god give me the strength 사랑해요 <laughs> and then i waited for my dad i thought my dad was going to be like I thought the silence was because he was weeping on the other line. You know, I was like, oh, you know, I was like, I do. I love you too. You know, I, I th- no. It, I said, 사랑해요. You know what happened? Big silence. And then he went, 그래. And then he hung up. He said, okay. And then he hung up the phone. And then I was like, I knew it. He's a horrible man. A son shouldn't have to expend this much energy trying to love a father who doesn't care. And you know, during this whole time, my friend Amos was sitting on my bed. I didn't notice that he was there. He was just like, oh. (laughs) You okay, Bobby? (laughs) I was like, oh. Oh, you were there. Okay, let's go with this. You know, so we went down to the uh, with witness. I was like, I was like, God, see, you keep making me reconcile with somebody and do this. It's never gonna happen. My father is just a broken, lost cause. This man is angry. This man is broken. Never gonna happen. That's two shots. And then as I prayed and as I prayed, God was like, Hey, when you go home, I want you to give your dad a hug. And I was like, oh, no. It's like, you can call over the phone when you're not looking at him face to face, but to touch him? After seeing what his physical body does to our family, just breaking stuff and just angry and not doing it. Conviction. I mean, it was literally every time I drove home, every time I caught a ride, it's just inside your heart, just conviction and conviction and conviction. And so I was like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. God, I'll do it. And then I prayed two hours back home and I prayed and prayed and prayed, got to my house and my dad was still there. I walked in and then I was like, I'm going to hug him. I'm going to hug him. It's going to be hug and it's going to be like, I love you. And I went and he walked out of the door. I don't know if this has ever happened where you plan to do something, but when you see the person in the face, like all of it evaporates. 
Like every part of prayer, love, anything I had from gone, and I walked right by my dad. Did you eat? Yes. I ate. And I'll mow the lawn later. Went back to school. This was a cycle again and again, again and again. It got so bad that I pulled aside my mom. We were driving into the restaurant, and I was like, Oma, I need prayer, you know, because she's a Christian. All these horrible things in our family, and it, it made her follow Christ and find comfort in Christ. So I was like, I need you to pray because God told me to hug dad. And she was like, Hoo. Like she was actually surprised. She was like, Hoo? And she was like, you know, and so my mom was like, we'll pray together and all that kind of stuff. So she was like excited and on board. And I was like, okay, I'm going to hug my dad. It's going to be a big one. It's going to be a good one. And, you know, and we're praying and praying. But every time I saw him, you know, I would work at the restaurant and and it was horrible. We were failing all the time in debt, but we were making sushi. So I had to be the bus boy, make sushi. I mean, I was doing everything at that restaurant. And I remember working next to him, just making sushi. And he would be like, make more, make more. And I was like, oh, whatever. Other kids, college kids are out there playing with their friends, and I'm working at the restaurant during my breaks. I just it hated him. But I kept finding that conviction. Came straight to the restaurant after one of the breaks. This was it. Prayer, lots of stuff. My dad came back, you know, from the sushi area. I remember walking up, and I did it. This was it. This was like the moment. I walked up. And I grabbed him. And you know what happened? He went. I was like, oh. Like, it felt like holding like a a wood piece, right? Like, I was like, this was supposed to be it. This is years of prayer. This is like, I still remember when I was like, transformed and junior high sat him down and I remember this moment of asking him like do you know Jesus and he was like I do and I was like do you believe him and he was like no the things that I did in my past I can't be forgiven of and I remember the conversation ended and it was super awkward and I was like okay never doing this again here was another moment to add to a father who cannot cannot change I did everything God asked me to do, and he was just unchanging. Went back to school, did the whole, I love my good, good father, you know, praise, serve everybody else. Went back to the restaurant because I wanted something to eat. No more convictions, no more like trying or sitting him down. I was like, okay. Walked into the restaurant, and this, I kid you not, he was at the sushi bar making things. He saw me, and then he comes out of the way And he walks towards me, and he goes, my son. And he embraced me. I don't know for you guys, but that cannot happen. You dream about it, and you hope, but there's no way. And I remember him holding me and saying, my son, my son. You know, what I found out was he was one of many sons, and he was always rejected by his father. 
He tried so hard, but he wasn't ever great at school. He wasn't ever anything, and he worked hard, and he was just rejected and rejected. And he would journal. I didn't even know he wrote. Like, I just thought he was angry, but he would write in his like, little journal about all these things. And he would, you know, one time my mom read one of these things, and he was like, oh, my son is sick, and my heart hurts. I was like, what? Who is this man? And he couldn't express it. And then as we were talking, my mom was like, you know, when he was alive, they never had enough food. They were always hungry. And so when he asks you, did you eat? He was saying, I love you. Am I providing enough? Are you hungry like I was? You see, in my head, I just created a monster that I couldn't love, but he was a wounded soul that didn't know what to do but just express the wounds that were overflowing from his heart. I didn't know that. And so God just kept asking me to love him because I've loved, I've been loved by him and that same love, unmerited favor and grace that somebody who doesn't deserve it, somebody who maybe have hurt you deeply, that we don't know what's going on in their hearts and their lives. And he, the only one who knows all, he says, let me love them. And the only way that I will do that is I have chosen my people to reflect who I am in the way that they love. And it is to forgive when one doesn't deserve it when one cannot know the length and depth of the wounds that they have suffered, to not know that and obey and to love another, that is divine and that cannot come from ourselves. It cannot come because we are a good Christian. It is what Christ does to love others through us. So my challenge to you and I is this. Who are you mad at and who are you so deeply hurt by? Who do you despise and who are you holding all these things against? And who are you killing again and again in your heart? And the Bible describes it as murder. And he says, love them as I have loved you. And you will begin to have the fellowship of suffering with Christ to know who Christ is face to face, that he suffered to love us. He took on the burden to love us. And in the same way, you and I will love another because we have first been loved. Let's pray. In its most basic and simple form, this teaching is that Christians in community are never to give up on one another, to never give up on a relationship, and never write off another believer. We must never tire of forgiving and seeking to repair our relationships. 
Matthew 5, 23 through 26 tells us we should go to someone if we know they have something against us. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 says we should approach someone if we have something against them. In short, if any relationship has cooled off or has weakened in any way, it is always your move. It doesn't matter who started it. God always holds you responsible to reach out and repair a tattered relationship. A Christian is responsible to begin the process of reconciliation regardless of how the distance or the alienation began. You are first loved so that that love overflows to those that have wounded you. And in that, it points to a Savior that that person needs to have their wounds healed. You know, my dad, he's a deacon in the church now. Every time I see him, he tells me, Bobby, are you praying? It must be hard loving students and people. And you know, even this past Father's Day, I reached over to shake his hand because the table was in the way. And my dad was like, no, we hug. And he came all the way around the table to give me a hug. And I was like, oh, how things have changed. I can't explain. I can't tell you it was the postcard. I can't tell you it was the phone call. I can't tell you it's because I hugged him. I don't know what it is. I just know that a heart that is that wounded and that broken cannot regenerate itself apart from God's grace. And a heart like mine that so hated my dad from all the wounds of my childhood cannot possibly begin to love such a father apart from God's regeneration of this heart and healing of my wounds. There is no way that any of this could happen apart from the most powerful force in the universe that God himself would send his son to rid of the sin and our nature to hate and destroy and instead that we would begin to reconcile and forgive and love beyond our own strength. So let me ask you, who in your life has wounded you so deeply? That you've shut your heart off from risking loving again. That you're cynical to forgiveness. Let me ask the Holy Spirit to come and just lay that person on your heart. For some of you, it'll be immediate. You know exactly who it is. And for others of you, you might actually be the wound, one who has wounded others without knowing, without being intentional. Or maybe you were. Maybe you brought people together and just hated on somebody. And you just thought, oh, that's being a teenager. That's just doing what I feel. But that crushing weight 
of that sin to bring hate and hurt and wounds to another soul's heart. God is calling us to repent. God is calling us to reconcile. God is calling us to begin to pray and ask God for the mercy and grace for our own hearts and the hearts of those that we hate. So can you do that with me? Lay your hand on your heart as a sign to tell God, God, my heart is so hard. It's so just crushed by this relationship like I can't even begin to forgive maybe your parents got divorced and you're just with your one parent and you hate the other one for leaving and you're just done with it and you never want any part with the other parent maybe it's killing you and you've buried it so deep that when we sing about the good good father you're like no there is no such thing whatever it is ask the Lord God Would you have mercy upon my soul? Would you take away this hardness of heart? So let's pray together. And while you're praying, I'm also going to ask if you have a friend or you're a counselor and you're sitting next to some of the students, there will be students who can't even begin to pray, and they actually need you to come alongside of them and and just begin to really lift them up. Maybe you're the only one who knows and understands that heart and what they've been through in their life, and, and maybe you're that friend who's listened to all the tears and sorrow like I listened to my mom again and again. Maybe you're the friend that needs to come alongside and just lay your hand and say, I know your pain, and I know your heart that is so deeply broken. I want to pray for you. You're missing out on the greatest relationship that you should be tasting and living in and just your heart just melting because you hate this person and because your heart has been so wounded. I want to pray for you. I want to ask God to have mercy and grace on your soul. So would you do that, counselors, teachers, friends? If you know that someone needs prayer, you just reach over, lay your hands, and just pray for them. If you need to get up, then you do that to get to that person. But pray. Let's take this time to really pray and ask God to just do a work in our heart. If you really need prayer, grab one of the pastors. Get up, grab them and say, this, there's a stone right here and I'm angry and I'm distant and I'm calloused. I need you to pray with me.
know, my older brother still hasn't healed from a lot of his wounds. He, he won't even sit next to my dad during family gatherings. I pray for him all the time. I, I, I look forward to the day when the anger and the wound that the Lord will just begin to melt his heart. And that I will see signs of that amazing grace fill his heart. Maybe you and your sibling have seen the same kind of brokenness in your family and the anger and the hurt. And if they're in this room, then I would ask, you know, pray together for the soul of the parent that has hurt you or somebody who's wounded you, aunts, uncles. Ask God, have mercy on our family, Lord. Let me ask Pastor DL to come and just conclude our time of prayer. But keep praying. For some of you, every relationship will be unhealthy until you begin to deal with this brokenness deep within. You'll seek all the wrong relationship with all your future spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, because there's a wound that is speaking louder than truth. So we need his mercy and grace to begin to deeply heal. So pray earnestly with just words it doesn't it's not a magical formula it's just you and God and you saying I need it just like for me years and decades of asking God it's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen but God would you would you so keep praying counselors keep going to people praying pastors Let's pray.
this uh, time of prayer is really important because what we do right now and in these next few moments is going to make the difference between whether we experience transformation in these relationships or we just get hit with something as we hear this and then think about what we need to do and don't do anything about it. When Jesus talked about what the greatest commandment was, is, he said, is to love God with everything in you. But the second is just like it, it's to love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 5, Matthew 18, as Pastor Bobby said, that means is if our relationship with God is off, our relationship with people will be off. But at the same time, for some of us, our relationship with God seems stunted. For many of us, it's because our relationship with people is stunted. You cannot separate relationship with God from relationship with people. Maybe some of us have a hard time forgiving. There's this pride in our hearts, and we say, yeah, I'm going to hold this against them for what they did. This unforgiveness, this bitterness, what it is, is us drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. Your unforgiveness, your bitterness, my unforgiveness, my bitterness is not hurting them. It's poisoning my own soul. It's poisoning your soul. It's not just, I don't want to do this. To choose to not forgive is to choose to die a slow and painful death. Maybe it helps if you realize, like Pastor Bobby's father, this monster of a man. Inside, he was just afraid, broken. And the person who hurt you human with a story and this is always the case guys hurt people will hurt people the one who hurt you was acting out of a deep pain and a deep hurt that doesn't excuse it but maybe that can make them a little bit more human so that you can realize their brokenness also when you hurt people it's because you are a hurt person work out of that brokenness. Let's just pray for a couple more minutes right now. Just really, God, I need the strength. For Pastor Bobby, the postcard, the hug, the phone call. At the end of the day, whether it was one or the other of those things, I think the answer is clear. What did it was obedience to the command of God and how that opened up a floodgate of grace in that relationship. Whatever it looks like for you, right? obedience will open up that flood as well. Just continue to pray for a couple minutes. I'm going to uh, ask our praise leaders to uh, lead us in a song, a song of healing. Um, yeah, but let's continue to pray right now. Yeah, just 
just a little bit more, okay? Press in just a little bit more. Don't give up yet. Right? You could be an inch away from experiencing life and power, healing. Forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation. It's a step to reconciliation. But when you say, I'm going to forgive, it doesn't mean that you're committing to go the way of reconciliation because it's a two-way street. You're saying, I'm going to let go of the anger in order that, Lord willing, we can pursue a reconciled relationship. Forgiveness doesn't mean trust either. For a battered woman to forgive her husband is one thing, but it does not mean she goes back into that home to live with that abuser. Forgiveness means letting go of the anger and saying, I'm not going to hold this against him anymore. Forgiveness is letting go of the anger, not holding it against him because we've been forgiven by Christ. Let's pray for another minute. If you're praying with someone, keep doing that. If you're praying alone, keep doing that. We're going to sing and then I'll share maybe just one more thing to pray about and then we'll sing another song to close again. Let's pray. What happens now? The difference between a good message and life change. Knowing doesn't change. Obedience changes us by grace. Let's continue to pray for a couple more moments. in here, I'd imagine that the wounds come from our Father. 
we can be refathered by a good, good father. We will only forgive to the degree we understand that we've been forgiven. As we sing, let's let his mercy, forgiveness wash over us, move us into continued response of forgiveness. And let's sing this song with our, our praise leaders. And if you are, are ready and able, you can stand. If you want to continue to pray and just quietly meditate over this song, you can. But whatever posture connects you best with the heart of God, let's worship together. Declare these truths about who he is and about who we are.